You're listening to 20-something pod with Gloria Mateo. On May 25th, a video surfaced online of a white woman by the name of Amy Cooper calling the police to report a black man who was supposedly threatening her. Please don't come close to me. Sir, I'm asking you to stop recording me. Please don't come close to me. Please take your phone off. Please don't come close to me. And I'm taking a picture of calling the cops. Please, please call the cops. Please call the cops. I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. Please tell them whatever you like. I'm sorry, I'm in the ramble, and there is a man, African-American, he has a bicycle helmet. He is recording me and threatening me and my dog. In the video, Cooper is heard saying the words, I'm going to tell the cops that an African-American man is threatening me. Threatening myself and my dog. And as the video continues, Cooper does in fact call the cops in a panic, exclaiming that she and her dog are being threatened by this man. I'm being threatened by a man in the ramble. Please send the cops immediately. Even though the video showed that the man in question was a few feet away from Cooper and her dog. While much has been speculated about the incident, one thing remains relatively undisputed. Cooper's words and subsequent call to the police is racist. This is because Cooper manipulated a long-standing white supremacist trope that dates back to slavery. The idea that black men are inherently criminal and dangerous and pose a unique threat to white women. The incident also occurred in the United States, a nation with a long history of falsely accusing and violently attacking black men for supposed crimes against white women. Most notable, of course, is the story of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old black boy who was brutally murdered and defaced after being accused by a white woman of making sexual advances towards her. The woman later admitted that she lied. What struck me most about the Amy Cooper story was what came out after the video went viral. The fact that Cooper is allegedly Canadian and studied at the University of Waterloo. Another thing I found interesting, Cooper's apology, which started off with the sentence, I am not a racist. I didn't mean to harm that man in any way. To be clear, what Amy Cooper did is racist. She knew exactly what she was doing by playing the race card against Christian Cooper, the Harvard-educated black man she made the call against. She was quick to weaponize her privilege because she knew it would work in her favor and that the system is set up to believe her accounts of what happened because she is white. But her I'm not a racist apology brought up something so Canadian it hurt. This long-standing denial of racism that persists among Canadians. As a Canadian, I cannot tell you how many encounters I've had with other Canadians who deny the existence of racism in Canada, particularly anti-Black racism. On this week's episode, I tell the past and present truths of anti-Black racism in Canada, as well as speak with three different Canadians, one white, two Black, about their experience with race and racism in Canada. To better understand the current climate of anti-Black racism in Canada, it's necessary to go back to where it all began. Slavery. For some Canadians, when they think of slavery, they immediately think of the United States, unaware that Canada also has a history of enslaving Black people for hundreds of years. The first chattel of enslaved people from Africa arrived in Canada, or what is now known as Canada, in the 1600s, and they would remain in slavery for over 200 years. While it is widely known that slaves picked cotton to build the economy of the South in the U.S., some might not know that Canada adopted a similar method to build its economy, the transatlantic slave trade. The way it worked was through a pattern of trade which is now called the Trade Triangle. So basically, European merchants would travel to Africa with goods and exchange those goods for enslaved people. The enslaved people would then be transported back to the Americas and in the most inhumane conditions. 
The slaves that survived that journey were sold. Go ahead, gentlemen. Here is a capital opportunity. Whoever will buy Harvey shall own a fortune. And then goods produced by slave labor would be carried back to Europe for sale. And the cycle would begin again. $1,450. Unfortunately, some of these underlying racist ideologies are still present in Canada today. So my name's Emma Wong. My last name's Wong because I have a Chinese background. I have a Chinese heritage. So I'm white with like a hint of Chinese. I grew up in Kingston and then moved to Kempville, which is like 45 minutes outside of Ottawa. There's a fair amount of diversity in my family with Chinese heritage. My great-grandfather was full Chinese. My aunt, she's indigenous. My second cousin, he's black. So um, I kind of grew up around a lot of diversity within our family and stuff. But because we lived, we lived in Kingston in a very white town. The first girl that I met that was black was Jamaican. We were like in grade in grade three or four. So that was kind of my first experience with somebody of a different race outside of my family. Right. And then within our home, that just wasn't really a conversation we ever had specifically about racism. Like um, we reflect on that now. That was probably because of white privilege. We never really were exposed to it. We never knew that it was happening because we were so blind to that issue. So you said you moved to Kemptville at 14. So how was that like? What's sort of what are some of the rate like how's race relations in Kemptville? Because it's a small town as well, right? The racism in Kemptville, I thought didn't exist because I never knew. Kemptville literally has no black people when I was growing up. Hmm. So they didn't whenever I was in high school from grade nine to 12, there were no black kids that I knew of in my high school. And the other high school, because there's only two in Kempville, there was one black student. As a group, as my high school, and as the people that I graduated with, I never considered anyone I went to school with to be racist or to really think poorly of people who were black. But that was a very naive perception. Right. Especially now with everything going on. I'm like, even people on Facebook I have, I'm like, oh my goodness, was I ever wrong. It's so crazy. There were two students in Kempville that were graduating, and so they did a promposal together, or she she did a promposal to her boyfriend, I'm pretty sure. And it was a sign that, I, I can't remember if this is the exact words or not, but I'm going to paraphrase, but it was something like, um, we're not picking cotton, so I'm picking you to prom. Was on her sign. Was on the sign, yeah. She made it. There were like <sighs> cotton balls all around it, like framed like glued cotton balls to this thing. It was on a black poster with white paint and just so, so outwardly racist. And so she, she knew it was wrong, I'm sure, because it was like kind of sent to a group chat. And then I guess what I hear anyway, is that someone in this group chat sent it out and that's how it got out. And that's how it became such a massive thing in Kempville. And so it made the Ottawa news. She unfortunately got her Queens offer revoked. And there was some serious consequence and backlash from the community. Wow. Yeah. So that was my first, like, whenever this whole Ahmad thing came out, like, oh my gosh, we really, really have to have conversations with our youth about racism because it totally exists here. Like, these are, mm-hmm. these are two students in a high school in Kempville that is as white as snow. It's crazy. Right. And so we can't let all these, all these kids be growing up and going off to university and not teaching them what, what it means to know equality. What most Canadians are aware of is the role that Canada played in the Underground Railroad. 
The Underground Railroad was a network of slave abolitionists and free black slaves who helped other enslaved black people escape from the American South to other parts of the world that would accept them. One of those places was Canada. Enslaved people would secretly code their songs and spirituals with instructions on how to use the Underground Railroad to escape. Kind of like this. The instruction here is, get off the trail and walk through the water to throw the slave catcher's dogs off your scent. It is reported that Canada welcomed up to 30,000 fugitives through the Underground Railroad. It really is a shining moment in Canadian history. And if you went through the Canadian high school system, you definitely remember being taught about Canada's role in the Underground Railroad. Unfortunately, what is left out of that narrative is the segregation that Black people encountered in Canada after escaping from slavery, especially segregation in schools. In 1850, an amendment was added to the Common Schools Act called the Separated Schools Clause, which allowed for the establishment of separate schools for Catholics, Protestants, and Black people. There were segregated schools all across Canada, and the schools remained in effect until 1983. And it wasn't only high schools. There was also segregation at the post-secondary level. In fact, many post-secondary institutions banned Black medical students from enrollment. One of those schools was Queen's University, and sadly, the policy prohibiting the admission of Black medical students into Queen's was only taken off the books in 2018. So my name is Tony Akinwumi. I am Nigerian. I was born in Nigeria, and uh, my family moved to Tanzania um, when I was about four years old. When I was about seven, we moved to Canada, which was awesome. I work within the tech industry as an event marketer at Shopify Plus. I was pretty exposed to diversity at a young age, but I wasn't really exposed to like race until I came to Canada uh, and, and more in the way where people made me very aware of my race uh, and, in, in, and specifically with discrimination and stereotypes. Uh, I, I realized that as a black person, First of all, you're grouped in as one. People didn't think of me as Nigerian. They just thought of me as black. Right. Just like, you know, from wherever. It didn't really matter to them, but I was black. Um, and from there, it was like, if you're a black person, you, you know, you're supposed to be a certain way. Um, you're supposed to like hip hop. You're supposed to uh, be a little bit wayward. You're supposed to be, you know, thuggish or whatever. Right. Uh, not well educated. All the really negative stereotypes uh, that they uh, related back to black people. And when you kind of, stood outside of that um they were like you're not really black you're you're acting like a white person you know like you can't like rock music that's for white people and yeah <laughs> and all these really weird stereotypes to put people in these boxes and I always remember feeling just like like what am I supposed to be like what am I supposed to like um if I can't like what I like uh and I think those were kind of my earliest uh experiences with race and, and discrimination and stereotypes and prejudice and all those things that make up anti-racist and things that are going on today. When did you like, and I, I know you and I have obviously spoken about this, uh, just about Queens University and your experience there. Was that the first time you kind of started realizing that people were treating you differently because of your race? The thing about Queens is it wasn't just white people. It was privileged, rich white people. Right. A lot of them, you know, went to private schools, knew each other from the, from from private schools and and just like 
had that community. Um, and it was weird because I remember my first year, the first month of going there. And, you know, for me, I was like, I'm going to university. I'm 18. I'm trying to get, you know, I'm trying to get in this, you know, I've never been able to party and like drink and things. So I had mm. a good time. I was like, I'm trying to get lit uh, <laughs> <laughs> and just have a good time. But every time I would hang out, like go with these people, they'd be like, oh my God, this is Tony, my black friend or <gasps> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like, oh my God, like, whoa, like, where are you from? Oh my God, you're the first black person that I've ever met. This is crazy. Like, oh my gosh, it was insane. It was insane. It was like I was a unicorn, hmm. as magical as I am as a person. Um, <laughs> Love it. Uh, it's like I'm not, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm not the only black person that ever existed. And to just be in higher education where people were so ignorant, have never even met somebody who looks like me. It was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. And you know, after the first month, I kind of just like left it. Um, because I was like, you know what, that's not the scene that I want. I ended up kind of finding a community um, within uh, the university. But it was actually, it was like a lot of Asian people, a couple of Black people um, that there was, <laughs> very few, but, you know. Mm. Uh, and just finding community within there. Uh, right. But it was, it was really difficult because, again, it was like for the first time, not for the first time in my life, but again, it felt like I was that kid again, uh, where I was new and everything was about, was about my race and that's all that people really cared about. Uh, so it was trying to navigate those waters of trying to be a good student, but then you have to deal with that too. So it was really weird and it's, it's kind of hard when people come to me these days and ask me about my experience about it, um, especially you know people who want to go there. I always keep it real with them, but what I always want to say too is like sometimes you have to go through experiences like that to just like learn a lot about yourself and other people. Right. Did anyone ever call you like the N-word and was just kind of very blatant? They never called me it specifically, but you'd be at parties and they'd be singing, um, you know, they'd be doing the rap songs and they'd say the N-word with like no regard. Wow. I can't. Oh, yeah. Like, you know what it is? Because like they have these black friends who don't call them out when they say mm -hmm. it, you know, because there's been times they've said it and again, like they'll have their, their, their black male friend and who will wrap it with them and not say anything. Um, you know, and you're just like, and I, I'll just like, Oh, Oh, it's like that. Okay. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. So they felt real comfy acting like that because nobody was calling them out. You know, I, I did work on campus. So I worked at two places. One of them was like a printing and copying center. And the second place was, it was called Common Ground. So it's like a coffee shop. And I remember in the coffee shop, there's a person and I would always see him. Like I remember him from the year before when I'd worked at the coffee center. And he'd always like be really chatty with me. And like, he was, he was this white kid. And I thought he was just, you know, like maybe flirting or something like that, which is fine. I wasn't, I wasn't about it. He used to come to the coffee center a lot and to like print like, a, like one paper so I was like I feel like he's like this is on purpose so again like I'm now working at this coffee shop and he came and he's like oh my god you got a job at Kogro uh, you know and he's like it's so hard to work here like how did you get here like is you know are they looking for some kind of quota uh, <gasps> oh my god <laughs> no like I was just like what like what he's like I mean you were also like the only black person working at Coke, like the, the copy, the, the copy center the, the year before, you know? And I was like, Oh, I actually wasn't, there was another person. And she's like, no, he's like, no, she doesn't count. And I'm just like, wow. 
like what? Um, okay. So like, it was so weird to me because on one end he was, as my parents say, you know, chatting me up. But right. on the other hand, he's, you know, trying to limit my accomplishments to just being like, because I'm black. And it was just so weird to me. Like, I was just like, it's such a weird thing because like, why is this a thing? Right. right? Like, why is this? And, you know, and people always say things like, oh, you know, when, uh, oh, I only, I have, I have black friends and been in a relationship with, you know, a, a black woman or whatever they say, just to say, you know, like I'm not racist. But I was like, I always remember that story just being like, here you have a person who's interested in a black woman, hmm. but still has the gaze of a white man yep. who is limiting a black woman and who is low-key racist, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it was just like, it was like a perfect example of that. Um, and it just, I remember it just making me really sad because I remember for a second, I also questioned, I was like, I do now I'm like, like I am the only black person who, who works here. Like, am I a token, uh, or something? And it made me question it, but I was, and then, you know, after I like kind of stopped, cause I'm like, you know what? Like, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm great. I deserve to be here. Like whatever. Yeah. Um, but I always just remember like that story because it just, it was such a weird like example of right. this is so expected, you know? Wow. Um, but yeah, that was Queens for you. Queens University has a sordid history of anti-Black racism, including multiple blackface parties. The most recent happened in 2016. There's also a blurred story of a Black man named Alfie Pierce, who served as the all-white football team's mascot in the early 1900s. Some students reported that Alfie was actually the team's public slave, while others say since he came to Queens by choice and was later paid for his services, he wasn't a slave. I'll let you guys decide that one for yourselves. Like, ultimately, it's a systemic issue because these are not isolated incidents. These are incidents that are happening and have been happening for a long time. And then when you read a stat, like they had a policy banning black medical students until two years ago. I'm not even surprised. They had a slave. They had a, uh, I don't know if you know this, but they had a slave at some point. Um, and they had this club. So this, this ended up getting changed. But when I was earlier in my university career, it was called Alfie's and it was named after the Queen's slave. They ended up changing it to, I believe, the underground. What do you mean they had a slave? Like they had like a queen slave. Wait. Like a slave. <laughs> like they owned a slave on campus. Like someone yes. was a slave that was on campus. His name was Alfie, I guess. Yeah. This was a person. A person. They had a slave. And they, they named a club, an on campus club, after the slave almost as the reparations of having a slave. <gasps> when, pe- when people were like, this is ridiculous. Oh my gosh, I'm getting like... I mean, people were probably like, wow, that's so nice. Giving back to the community. And then they tried to change the name to erase the history. Like, I, I can't. When it comes to racism in Canada today, it's individually experienced through microaggressions, subtle but racially charged insults that are at times disguised as compliments. Just to share some of my own story, I've had people tell me they are shocked at how quickly I learned English for someone born in Nigeria. Fun fact, Nigeria's official language is English. I've also had people express their shock at how articulate I am, like an educated black person is an anomaly. I remember in high school, my science teacher would actually click at me every time he tried to pronounce my last name, which was apparently just too difficult and too foreign for him to try and pronounce. Now on a bigger scale, Racism in Canada is mostly systemic. 
when people think of the words mass incarceration or disparities in the prison system, they immediately think of the U.S. However, a study showed that as of 2016, 60% of people incarcerated in Canada are on remand, also known as pretrial detention. Now, remand is for people who are denied bail and incarcerated in advance of their trial. In other words, people who are legally innocent. Black and Indigenous people are disproportionately not granted bail and incarcerated on remand and can remain in these detention centers for up to two years awaiting trial. And what's worse? Access to education. In Ontario, it's not legally mandated that correctional institutions provide education to prisoners, even though research shows that formerly incarcerated people who participate in some sort of educational program are 43% less likely to be reincarcerated. Even the U.S. offers released prisoners access to education through the Pell Grant. To my knowledge, no such thing exists in Canada. My name is Pierre Iris. I am 31 years old. I'm born and raised uh, here in Ottawa, Ontario. I currently live in Gatineau with my beautiful wife, and I am a youth worker uh, working with young offenders for the Youth Services Bureau. Growing up, I realized that uh, more and more uh, when I stepped outside or when I was in certain public spaces that I was a call to perform, if you will. So example, uh, my mom would always tell me, you know, dress appropriately and uh, cut your hair. So I didn't have the the, the privilege of growing out my hair, right. and braiding it and, and, and doing what I'd like with my with, with my hair, or my, with my appearance. I had to appear appropriate, if you will. Hmm. So that kind of translate into my interactions with other white people, whether it be at the grocery store, whether it be in, in the lineup. Um, I had to smile even and <laughs> I didn't have the best day. And it sort of opened my eyes to see that black people, like we are, our bodies aren't really free. Hmm. We don't have the privilege to have a, have a crappy day. Um, we step outside and we wear these masks uh, to, make other people, uh, i.e. white people, comfortable. I can describe myself. I'm, I'm 6'2 and 245 pounds. I'm, right. I, I, I can look pretty threatening hmm. uh, <laughs> to, to certain people or, or I can look like uh, aggressive or um, athletic, if you will. And, and it's, it's sort of suppressed when, when I step outside. It's, it's suppressed when I, I have interactions with white people. And there's this constant pressure um, of, of performing and, and not being who I am and just be just being right. Yeah, um, totally. I can't even imagine what how a very relatively big sort of black man walking around in society makes for some reason how other people feel. Um, but in Canada, because we are bloody polite, our sort of modern day racism besides it existing largely in our systems and institutions is experienced through microaggressions. So are there sort of any instances that stick out to you of like microaggressive behavior um, that you've experienced yourself personally or have seen directed towards some other people well just ju looking at my just judging my appearance i've i've received comments uh such as <laughs> well they they'll look at it as compliments <laughs> they'll say that you look like a basketball player right you look like a football player and then from the from the first time you hear that you're you're oh that's, that sounds pretty nice but when you really look deep into it it's like oh well 
they're looking at me as if um, that's that's all I'm good at. A big black guy equals a football player. Like that's that, and that's that. They never go like you. Kind of look like a doctor. You know, that's yeah. not. Yeah, that's not like a thing. Or you like, look like a yeah. You look like you an look IT like an guy engineer. Or, yeah, or right. An engineer, exactly. Yeah. And uh, even even comments uh, of 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 where I'm from not being Canadian enough and pushing uh, to if you will to to see like okay where are you really from Pierre. And then I tell him, like, well, my parents are from Haiti. And, like, exactly. Right. <laughs> that's where you're from. And it's like, oh, okay. Like, that's... <laughs> right. Hmm. You know, it kind of makes you think twice. So there's these there's these compliments that that that, uh, that white people give you and that that can be perceived as, as really, you know, thoughtful and, and nice. But really, it just goes a little deeper than that, mm. right? It's based on it's based on your appearance. It's based on their perception of what a typical black guy looks like. Um, even going to school, like uh, career paths right. and stuff. I heard teachers tell me that, you know, like hands-on things, uh, hard labor uh, would be a, a better option uh, for me wow. for, for career paths. So really opened my eyes a lot about... Uh, just looking at my interactions on a day-to-day basis uh, growing up. I had one guy tell me uh, he was uh, looking into policing after his career here at the, at the detention center. And uh, he sort of talked about the procedures and, and how uh, uh, future police officers, are, they ought to do um, an eye exam. And if you're colorblind, that, uh, that they'll accommodate that uh, because... Uh, an eye exam is, is quite important when it comes into looking into policing. Right. And he said a comment saying, um, well, as far as colorblind, like I can be colorblind and, uh, and be a police officer. And I said, well, why do you say that? And he said, well, most of the suspects are black. So oh. <laughs> that I wouldn't can't. be an issue for me. And he said it with a smile on his face. Uh, wow. Giving me a pound on my chest like it was a joke that I was going to laugh alongside with him so that, that was really really tough what about with the youth like when they come in like i don't know if maybe you've noticed anything about the this like numbers racial wise of that were brought in definitely the the statistics are, are definitely accurate uh, my workplace uh we're getting kids from all sorts of places like i mentioned before mm. i think the challenge uh and the the factors that i find at work is that we're not as sensitive to culture, for example, towards your average black kid from the streets of Toronto. So a lot of black kids communicate through uh, different lingos and different slangs. I, I understand it. I, I get it. I'm, I, I, I'm from their world, if right. you will. But some other white coworkers wouldn't necessarily understand that and would perceive that as threatening. So, for example, if you get a, you know, your average kid from Toronto, he goes, yo, fam, what's going on? And, you know, your, your white coworker would be like, oh, that's that sounds like that sounds like gang talk. Yeah, right. And, 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 and you're like, no, no, he's he's he comes in like he's saying something good. <laughs> he's right. So right. Uh, it's little examples like that where, um, you know, unfortunately, certain staff are not culturally aware of. Of, of the youth, uh, particularly the black youth that uh, that come through our doors, and it's definitely something a conversation that uh, that we're we're continuing uh, on, uh, you know, in workshops and stuff like that. So, or when you say something, or you have some uh, a reply saying, "Hey, that's that's that wasn't funny. That comment wasn't funny." 
I now I'm the aggressive black guy, and I need to have a visit with uh, human resources for uh, my aggressiveness, my aggressiveness in the in the workplace. So it's it's really tough. <laughs> so it's not really a question of if there is racism in Canada. It's more a question of why the racism that exists is so well hidden. In the wake of George Floyd's death, the whole world has been awakened to the realities of anti-black racism in the U.S. It's also forced many people to look at their own countries and challenge the discriminatory and racist systems that exist. I think Canadians like to compare themselves and look at themselves as as nicer than their fellow American neighbors. They look at what's going on uh, south of the border and seeing black people blatantly being killed, looking at each other, saying, well, we're, we're, we're not that bad. But uh, it's sort of like a sense of denial, just kind of like a false idea that Canadians don't have these social issues uh, here. Um, there is police brutality towards people of color, towards Aboriginals, towards people of Nova Scotia. There's a whole history on that, you know, blacks in Nova Scotia's police brutality in Montreal and in, 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 in Toronto and even here in Ottawa. Uh, there's definitely cases of, of these things. And there definitely is discrimination in Canada, even in sports, uh, you know, even in hockey. Right. Like there's so many stories where where there's these discriminations towards black players and not being able to to be part of certain clubs and join certain arenas uh, to play hockey. Canadians aren't uh, we can't uh, hide the fact that we, we deal with these social issues. I always found it so funny, like in America, for example, they call them African-Americans, Asian-American the people who were first on the land, they call them Native Americans. But then when you think of an American, you think of, they just call them white, like un-American. They just say you're an American and you're white. Like, that's it. Um, and the same in Canada. It's like, you know, you think of a Canadian and you just think of like, oh, the person's just white when there's so many different variations of like, what a Canadian looks like. I think to your point, like we want to erase our history because we don't want to seem like we're America. When in reality, like, we're in the same family, basically, you know, we were raised by the same parents, if you look at that. So one of the one of us is just better at hiding it, uh, pretending it doesn't exist, but it does. Um, and a lot of the issues don't get publicized. Uh, and I almost believe that because even though we are aware of some issues, we don't want to, we don't want to talk about it, because we still want to sit on our high horse and, and um, make ourselves seem like we're better than America. And I think, if we were to admit that we're not, it would be like a wake-up call that we're just not prepared to deal with. Like you look at the protests in Toronto, for example, there was literally a guy who went to it, you know, in blackface. Our freaking prime minister did brownface and blackface. Like it's here. It's unfortunate that this is the world that we live in. Um, where they just like hate us so much, you know, like it's not based on, on much. It's based on a few. And you always think of the example of mass massacres, you know, school shootings, but you don't look at a white person and say, Oh, you're for sure going to like, you're, you're white. You're, you're like a, a you know, a, a mass shooter. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, you don't, it's not like, oh, that white person shot up a school or a church. So all white people are like that. They don't get painted in the same brush. But 
black people, one black person does something and we all get painted in that. <laughs> and it's like, you always, I know you probably think this too. It's like, you look at the news and you hear a story. And the first thing we think about, please don't be black. <laughs> please don't be black. Once, and I'm hoping this is, this is the situation that's happening now. Like once we fully can accept that we are a racist nation as well. And there are things that have been done in history that have been awful and very anti-Black. Um, I think from there, we'll be able to hopefully take more actionable steps into actually trying to deal with the problems. And I don't mean fix them because that's going to take a lot more work, but to actually just like try to understand how we can start building, you know, um, and changing the way society looks at us. And that is on white people, just by the way. I would say white fragility is a huge piece of that. Like, and, and for me, honestly, like when I was learning about this, this would probably ruffle a lot of people's feathers. But what I learned from, from researching and listening to what other people have to say was that most white people, if not all, are racist because of the bias they've been born into. They might not be outwardly racist, like they're going to deliberately go out of their way, but they're ignorant, they're blind. You know, we say stuff that we don't even know is totally wrong and inappropriate. What, what I've also learned about white fragility is like, we kind of have to dance around it. It makes the conversation so much harder because people get so offended that you even would think that they're racist um, instead of just acknowledging like, oh my gosh, I have a problem. That's a big blind spot. I've been thinking about me this whole time. I should just acknowledge that and then, you know, figure out how we can go forward and address that so that it creates real change. I think honestly, it's just a lot of, like you say, like lack of knowledge and in, in our school systems and how we're like raised to think this is all academic and that it doesn't apply today. And it, it's really crazy. Now, it's important to note that the Black people I interviewed on this episode are speaking of their own experiences, not all Black people's experiences. But I do believe a lot of Black people listening can relate to these stories. This has to end. And I've never been more hopeful of the reality of ending racism than now, today, with a lot of people embarking on a sort of anti-racist education. To help out, I asked my guests to suggest resources that they find particularly helpful. I've also been listening to the Good Ancestor podcast, which is incredible. It's all about basically teaching white people how to be a good ancestor and how to basically unwork everything <laughs> that our own ancestors have brought up for us. Change can literally just happen by you changing the way you see things. For example, I work within events. When I go to a, an event and I see a panel, whether it's you know, it's full of white people, full of white people, maybe white men. For most people now, when they see a panel full of white men, what do they say? Where are the women? Why is this an all-male panel? Some people have, have even gone as far to say, I will not go in an event if it has only male pan white panelists. That's what they say. But then when they're advocating for more women on those panels, what women are they talking about? White women, right? So... Then you go to panels and maybe you have, you know, white guy, white girl, right? And everybody thinks the panel is fine. Because when I go to panels, I say, where's the black people? Where's the women of color? It's as simple as changing the way you see that and saying, where are the black women? Where are the black men? Where are the people of color? Like, I don't want to just see white people on this panel. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to 
your diverse voices. And I'm like, that's, it's, those are the, the things that you can really start doing. Take time to connect with people in the community. You know, talk to people that you've never connected with before. Try to build those connections because a lot of people are so comfortable uh, within the bu- bubble that they're in, within the people that they know. A lot of it is people's comfortability with connecting with people who don't look like them, who haven't had shared experiences um, as them. So I think it's literally just about changing the way you think about how you want to build out your, your programs and also getting really comfortable being uncomfortable as an organization. I actually wrote a paper uh, in college. Um, it's called uh, Black Ice, and it's the history of the lost history of colored hockey leagues of the Maritimes. And it talks about colored hockey league and blacks performing at such a high level uh, in the Maritimes. And it's something that we don't talk about uh, in Canadian history. So I definitely mentioned some books uh, such as Black Ice, anything from for, from James Baldwin. But for me, uh, I'm not much of a, a book reader. I'm, <laughs> I'm more visual. Uh, so any Spike Lee movie, honestly, is, <laughs> is uh, a perfect start <laughs> just to inform yourself and educate yourself on social racial issues. Uh, I mean, like Malcolm X, Bamboozle, Do the Right Thing, uh, the recent film, Black Klansman. I love that. That was awesome. Um, yeah, any Spike Lee movie, uh, I think that it really opens your eyes to see um, things that uh, people dealt with and things that we're dealing with today and, and how there's such a relation uh, towards uh, to, between the two. And and I feel like people, I think people are, are good resources. Talking to people that that are older than, than you, maybe our parents, maybe our grandparents, maybe uncles and aunts, and seeing generational patterns, maybe, um, maybe seeing, um, man, like this is how you dealt with racism uh, back in your time and, and kind of seeing the correlation between the two, uh, what's going on with today. Who taught you to hate the texture of your hair? Who taught you to hate the color of your skin? We are exploited. We are downtrodden. We are denied not only civil rights, but even human rights. So the only way we're going to get some of this oppression and exploitation away from us or aside from us is come together against the common enemy. Big, big thank you to my guests, Emma, Tony, and Pierre for their vulnerability. Also, special shout out to my editor and Catherine Desulme, who scrambled with me to put this thing together in a short amount of time. And thank you guys for listening. As always, don't forget to subscribe and share the episode online. Follow me on Instagram at 20somethingpod. And if you're comfortable, please share your experience with racism in Canada. If not, let me know what you thought of the episode. And as always, I'll catch you guys on the next one. 